All right. Well, good day, everybody. As always, you're listening to the ASSP Healthcare Practice Specialties Healthy Podcast. I'm Corey Worden. I'm the administrator for the Healthcare Practice Specialty. We appreciate you joining us today. Today, we got a cool episode coming up. It's very unique. Today, we're going to be talking to, <clears throat> excuse me, Christy Mays, who's got a, a long, long career and a lot of different experiences. But in particular, today, we're going to be talking about things like uh, chronic illness and trauma and how those things affect life and work. So she's got a lot of great perspectives and a lot of great things to share. So we're going to go ahead and get into that today. Um, so Christy, short of me speaking for you, uh, if you can give everybody just a little bit about yourself, you know, your background, uh, career, education, whatever you'd like to share, we, we appreciate it, please. Hi, Corey, and thank you very much for this opportunity. So hi, everyone. My name is Christine Mays. I have a bachelor's degree in international relations and political science from American University in Washington, D.C., I have a Master of Public Administration from DePaul University, Chicago. I am also a qualified CPST, or Child Passenger Seat Technician. In addition, I am also a certified election judge for DuPage County in Illinois. So regarding my professional experience, my most recent full-time professional position was as a program manager, volunteers, and awards for the National Safety Council in Itasca, Illinois. And I am currently taking some time off to spend with my 21-month-old son and doing some contract work, like serving as a public sector safety and education consultant for an organization called Athenum Partners, which is based in New York City. And I do have one particular experience that I would like to share with everyone because it directly impacts what I will say here today. So in March 2017, I suffered a brain aneurysm. And for those of you who do not know, that is actually a type of stroke. So after I had that aneurysm, I survived three brain surgeries in three weeks. And I am now fully recovered. My neurological team tells me that I have been added to the brain aneurysm survivor list. And they also tell me that they very often do not get to add people to that list. Definitely. that's. Uh... Yeah, I know you have definitely a lot of a lot of great experiences and a lot of great work um, in, in your career. And um, I know we've kind of kind of seen all of um, seen everything kind of transpire in the last last six years. Um, I know you and I, unfortunately, both had some kind of unfortunate medical conditions at the same time. Um, and so, as we all know, you know, we talk about these things a lot with especially with the healthcare practice specialty in that. You know, a lot of our a lot of our members, and of course the organizations that our members work with, particularly healthcare systems and clinics, and public health and people of that nature. You know, they deal with the enormous amount of stress, and that tends to lead to a lot of different conditions such as burnout and um, any kind of personal medical conditions can, of course, exasperate all of that. So these are all great things that we can discuss and learn from. So we, we appreciate you being here today. So. Kind of to extend on the introduction that you gave, um, if you want to tell our members a little bit about, you know, why it's important for you to advocate for for chronic illness and and trauma support, and um, um, why why you feel like that's important for organizations to understand that some of their team members may be experiencing some of these things. Okay, so Corey, that is a great question. And I believe it's important for trauma and chronic illness support because these individuals who, who deal with either or both of these two conditions 
are dealing with an insurmountable task 24-7. They do not get a break. Stress that results from either or both because a chronic illness can lead to a trauma diagnosis can have lasting effects on a person's psyche. For example, I have a friend who lost the ability to walk overnight. At the same time, she broke up with her long-term girlfriend. She couldn't work any longer due to not being able to walk. She couldn't go to a doctor because she lost her health insurance. And at this point, I like actually met her through a mutual friend and I started working with her to explore her next course of action, which eventually involved her hiring a lawyer to fight for her to receive SSDI or social security disability insurance. And definitely there's, yeah, there's a lot of factors involved there. And um, yeah, unfortunately, you know, it ranges from, of course, all these things affect everybody's personal life. And then, of course, it affects the work life. And like you said there, you know, it's 24-7, so it can't just be turned on and off. And um, it's important that, that organizations are able to acknowledge that so that, you know, people don't get, uh, you know, quote unquote, left behind, so to speak. Right. Um, and at the opposite end of the spectrum, my own husband deals with physical trauma from a long ago car collision. So he has chronic pain every day. And he also has his own chronic medical conditions, including type two diabetes and bipolar disorder. However, he works full time and he's created a solid medical team for himself and they keep him active. And you know they do a lot of maintenance work with him. So he's just not left out hanging. Like there's always someone you know keeping track of him and making sure that he is doing as well as he can. That's great. That's great. Yeah, there's there's definitely uh, a lot of different experiences for sure, and I think that's part of the importance of it. You know, is is organization to understand that it's not, you know, it's it's not a monolithic, you know, singular experience that everybody has. So you can't just put a a, a standard operating procedure on it and expect it to be all better. You know, everybody's everybody's got different variables involved. Um, and of course, one of those things is, like you said, you know, just the initial treatment. So just identifying whether it's an emergency or a, or the onset of the condition and then being able to get the right treatment for it, which sometimes, you know, there is no there is no treatment, unfortunately. Um, so, of course, that's a variable in itself with different different healthcare organizations. So how's that been for you with with your uh, experiences in the, well, to say the, the U.S. healthcare system? How's, how's that worked out over the years? So my personal experiences in the U.S. healthcare system have been varied, and I'm going to start with the doctors themselves and the doctors who make up my medical team. And next, I'm going to address the actual medical system itself. So for this presentation that refers to the structural aspects of medical care, meaning the provider billing and my personal experiences in navigating a large and mostly decentralized hospital system. So First, the relationships I have with my medical team are very individual because each provider is obviously their own person and they each have their own personal style or bedside manner or patient interaction. So my personal experience has been that doctors fall into one of two categories. So I'm going to call category one the true believer. And this type of doctor wants you as the patient to feel empowered to do what you want to do if you feel you can do it. And I personally prefer to work with this type of individual because I want someone who does not believe in operating under the curtain of what if. I don't wanna live my life that way and I don't wanna work with a, provi a provider who does. So category two 
which I'm going to call the Doubting Thomas, these doctors try to impose their own personal agenda beliefs on you. So these providers might refuse to help you if you intend to do something that they personally feel is a bad idea because it might lead to a less than perfect outcome, thus reflecting less than perfectly on them and their care of you. And my personal experience with this type of doctor is that these individuals also refuse to work with the rest of your medical team. And it's really important that your medical team, you know, gets along, they understand each other, and that they can work together well, because they all have one thing in common, and that is this patient, you. And that's been the case multiple times in my personal experience, that there have actually been doctors I've gone to see, and I suggested that they might want to talk to, you know, doctor X, Y, and Z, and this other doctor has said, well, I don't work with other doctors. What? Don't you all have like something in common? Like, don't you want the best for me? You all are, you know, you all have, you know, a hand in the game. And I really don't like working with doctors like that because I want someone who is collaborative and wants to, you know, interact with other, you know, medical professionals because you're all a piece of the puzzle. And I don't understand why someone wouldn't want to contribute to, you know, the bigger picture, which is the patient. And I'm now going to turn to the actual healthcare system and working within the parameters of that system. So, for example, it took me many phone calls to the billing department of my healthcare system to determine what their system is like. And their system is actually set up in such a way that whenever a patient, so like, for instance, me, has a new procedure done there, instead of having one patient account, an entirely new account is set up for the same patient. And this type of record keeping makes information very difficult to navigate on the staff side, and it is almost impossible to ensure that payments have been correctly applied to a bill. And I was able to call the business office for my healthcare network, and I was able to work my way up to the director of patient accounts and speak to her about three years ago about this, so after we went through all my accounts and I had a better picture of what my accounts looked like, I asked her why record keeping was set up this way. I could almost hear her shrug and she just said, that's just how the system was set up. And I realized I can't change this and she obviously can't either. So we all have to work within the constraints we have imposed upon us, but wouldn't it be great if the hospital record system was actually set up for helping their patients, which are actually their clients? And I have actually said that to people at my healthcare network. And they're like, that's our goal. But they don't, you know, talk more about how this could be changed. Yeah, definitely, definitely a lot, a lot going on there, you know, and, you know, like we were talking about the reason for this conversation, of course, is that, you know, it's important that especially as safety professionals, we understand some of the situations that that our team members go through because all of those things ultimately affect affect safety, whether it be at home or at work or, or both in many cases. So with that, of course, you know, any type of chronic condition or, or trauma, you know, it's it's definitely gonna gonna affect work. Um as, as an extension, of course, whether it be just the ability to get there or whether it be, you know, ab absentee or presenteeism, 
or affecting job duties, things like Disabilities Act and uh, and information and confidentiality with HIPAA. Um, what are some different ways that you've seen that your experiences have affected the that balance between your your home and work life? Well, in general, I have been able to balance my professional life and my home life. You know, I make sure to listen to my doctors and go to all my check-in appointments, and I do actually have a lot of them, you know, so that I can maintain the best level of health for myself, so that means I can, you know, bring my best game to work, but also, you know, that I can stay healthy for my family. And what has given me trouble at times is when I need to schedule a test like an MRA or M slash MRI. And given the record keeping system that I just talked about at my hospital, where, you know, it, the system creates a new patient account for every procedure I have done at that hospital, all my information is not kept in the same place. So inevitably, the rep I'm speaking to can't find the record of my last, you know, scans. And even though I'm scheduling the exact same test I had this time last year at this time, I get a lot of pushback and questions like, can you even do this test with the magnetic adjustable shunt? Because to make things you know, more interesting, I have a magnetic adjustable shunt in my head. And that's because after I had the aneurysm, the doctors discovered that I was also suffering from a condition called hydrocephalus. And that's a fancy word that means that my body doesn't do what it's actually supposed to do. When there is fluid on your brain, your body is supposed to automatically push the fluid down through your spinal cord. But this hydrocephalus condition means that my body does not do that. So the doctors had to install something that would do that for me, which means I now have magnetic adjustable shunt. So when I have these scans done of my brain, and I have to have them done fairly recently just because of the aneurysm, you know, reps are like, when I say I have something like that in my head, they're like, well, we can't do that. We can't schedule that. Can you even do that? And I'm like, if you look at my records for this date, you know, last year, August, whatever, I had it done. So if it was okay then, it should be okay now because nothing has changed. And that usually gets me to the point where the rep reaches out to the imaging department and the imaging department you know, picks up the phone and they confirm that I have had that scan done them and it was okay. So they give me permission to do the test. So for me, the entire process of scheduling a test like an MRI MRA can take up to four hours. It should take five minutes. So I usually end up taking a PTO day off to deal with scheduling, you know, the MRI. And it really should not be that difficult. Like a rep at the hospital should be able to pull up my account and see my history of these procedures. And, you know, well, if she's had this test done five times, you know, because I have it done annually, it should still be okay but it's a battle I literally have to fight every single time. And definitely there's a, yeah, a lot, a lot going on there. I know that, you know, in, in my situation with the, you know, balancing the, the two that work in the home life, of course, there's the, the, the everyday stuff, you know, such as being able to, being able to get up and get moving in the morning, you know, and then being able to being able to perform the different job functions um, and whether there's a need for accommodations. And then, of course, you've always got that variable of 
reasonable accommodations and direct threats under the Disabilities Act. And then, of course, there's always the, the situation, you know, where the, the organization needs a certain amount of information and balancing that with, with HIPAA and Privacy Act. So a lot of variables. And, and like you said, all that applies to being able to get the healthcare services that are needed to be able to to make those things happen at work. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot to it, you know, and I, I do, I do agree that, you know, it's important employers are able to understand so that number one, you know, everybody's treated, you know, justly. So there's, there's no violations of privacy or confidentiality and, and then people are able to, you know, maintain a, a fair and equitable work environment. But, um, yeah, definitely. Um, a, a lot that you've been through there. So knowing all that, you know, let's say that you were able to, let's say that you were able to have that, you know, quote unquote, uh, you know, critical conversation with with a with an organizational leader. Uh, what are some of the things that you'd like them to understand and be aware of, you know, in particular that that people may be going through that have chronic illnesses or, or traumatic situations and ways that the organization can can make sure that they're they're doing right by them? Well, that's a great question, Corey. So living with trauma and chronic illness generally means regular doctor's appointments for maintenance because, you know, for those of us who deal with chronic illness or trauma, we have a lot to deal with. And that means a lot of doctor's appointments. And we want to go to these doctor's appointments, not because we enjoy them or because they're fun. We want to go to them to make sure that we are kept as well as we can be. And that generally means using what little PTO time we have on a variety of doctor appointments. I think employers can make things easier on employees who are dealing with these conditions like chronic illness and trauma by not docking them PTO time for something as mundane and essential as going to a doctor's appointment or getting a required test done. These tests and appointments, they're not a vacation. They're not, you know, a, a day off for a ball game. Quite frankly, I'd rather be at work than in an MRI tube. So maybe something could be worked out, like creating, you know, some sort of nondescript form that someone could bring into, you know, an appointment that their doctor's office could complete and then they could bring that form back to their work and submit that form to HR, you know, to actually, you know, prove that they were at, you know, this place on this day getting this test done. And, you know, yes, this was a mandatory test. And actually, that was something I was working on, you know, when I was still at the National Safety Council. There were a group of us who were dealing with, you know, very similar circumstances. and we decided that maybe something, you know, could be changed within the organization. Yeah, definitely, very important. You know, it's interesting. Um, I like how you bring that up because that's something we talk about a lot in particular in the last, you know, 22 months with, with the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic is that, you know, people's, um, organizations ADA responsibilities are that you know to require to provide reasonable accommodations and then if something is still you know if something is still unsafe and reasonable accommodations aren't possible to meet the essential job functions then you know it goes into direct threat territory and sometimes these things are exempt from ADA and whatnot 
So there's some factors there. And so with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's been very important that people understand that, you know, there, there are, there are needs for exposure prevention, you know, ranging from whether it's possible to do remote work, which is more of a risk transfer for location transfer, or whether it's physical separation at the same facility, or whether it's social distancing, you know, or whether it's, if it's a high risk environment, like clinical work or COVID-19 testing or whatnot, then, you know, PPE and N95 respirators. And so making sure that if somebody has any kind of medical condition or any kind of need for increased exposure prevention, that we're able to do that to the extent possible. And then if it's something that does require, you know, critical exposure prevention needs like a respirator, making sure that person can do that safely. And of course that's required with the respiratory protection program is the, the medical evaluation. And so if people aren't able to do that, then, then it, you know, we can find either a alternative duty so they don't have to go into a hot area, which means they don't have to wear a respirator, um, or different different variables like that, different ways to work these things out. But the first step, you know, like you said, is is for organizations to understand people's individual situations, and then of course be able to do that with confidentiality and with disabilities, um, uh, reasonable accommodations, and making sure everything worked out there. And um, unfortunately, you know, when if, if things aren't uh, proactively, you know, worked out with a matter of due diligence, then it can lead to a situation where, you know, where somebody, um, whether it's purposeful or not, somebody's personal situation can end up being held against them. Um, so we definitely would like to see any kind of measures where that doesn't happen, whether it be something like PTO time for, for medical treatment, like you said, or for diagnostics, uh, or whether it be all you know, reasonable accommodations, things of that nature. So a lot of different things there, and that, that really, you know, strikes home the way, the way that you refer to that. Uh, I've, I've definitely been through that myself. So, like we said, we were talking about, you know, HIPAA and, and ADA, the Disabilities Act. Those regulations, of course, have been there for a while, you know, with Department of Labor and, and whatnot. Do you, do you feel like those are successful? Do you feel like they have any kind of um, tripping points? Anything you can think of? Any thoughts on that? Well, I'll start off with my my response with the official definition of HIPAA, just so we're all on the same page. And this is the definition as defined by the U.S. Department of Housing and Human Services. So the HIPAA privacy rule establishes national standards to protect individuals' medical records and other personal health information and applies to health plans, healthcare clearinghouses, and those healthcare providers that conduct certain healthcare transactions electronically. And the rule requires appropriate safeguards to collect the privacy of personal health information and sets limits and conditions on the uses and disclosures that might be made of information without patient authorization. The rule also gives patients rights over their health information, including rights to examine and obtain a copy of their health records and to request corrections. And since I am looking to re-enter the workforce in a full-time professional position outside the home, I've been doing a lot of applying for new positions. And one question I seem to run across very often is, do you have a disability? And I regularly see that there are three answers that can be selected. One, I have a disability. Two, I do not have a disability. And three, I do not wish to answer. And I saw this enough. I was 
very curious. So I actually spoke to an attorney about the question because I was legitimately curious about what those individuals with a condition that can legally be qualified as, as a disability should answer. And the attorney said that since HIPAA is now the law of this country now, and we all have control over who has access to our healthcare records, I should always answer the third option of, I do not wish to answer. And this makes a lot of sense to me. Why should an employer know before they even consider a candidate, you know, that might have a chronic health condition? That might also fit the textbook definition of a disability as defined by the ADA. My health is my own business. And if I am proactively seeking professional employment, any chronic condition I might have is most likely regularly managed by at least one physician and tightly controlled. So now I'm going to move on to the ADA or the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the Americans with Disabilities Act became law in 1990. And the ADA is a civil rights law that legally prohibits discrimination against individuals with disabilities in all areas of public life, including jobs, schools, transportation, and all public and private places that are open to the public. The purpose of the law is to make sure that people with disabilities have the same rights and opportunities as everyone else. And the ADA gives civil rights protections to individuals with disabilities like those provided to individuals on the basis of race, color, sex, national origin, age, and religion. It guarantees equal opportunity for individuals with disabilities in public accommodations, employment, transportation, state and local government services, and telecommunications. And the ADA is divided into five titles or sections that relate to different areas of public life. So in 2008, the Americans with Disabilities Act, Amendments Act, ADAAA, was signed into law and became effective on January 1st, 2009. The ADAAA made several significant changes to the de definition of disability. And the changes in the definition of disability in the ADAAA apply to all titles of the ADA, including Title I, Employment Practices of Private Employers with 15 or more Employees, State and Local Governments, Employment Agencies, Labor Unions, Agents of the Employer, and Joint Management Labor Committees, Title II, Programs and Activities of State and Local Government Entities, and Title III, Private Entities that are Considered Places of Public Accommodation. And personally, I think that the intent of the ADA was very positive. In practice, I think it is a much different scenario because you are dependent on individual businesses or public locations to adhere to the ADA. For example, in restaurants, I often see that the restrooms are in the basement, but there's no customer elevator to the basement. So how do customers who use an assisted mobility device access a basement bathroom if they can't walk down a flight of stairs? Also, I I've seen organizations which deliberately keep their staff to under 15 employees, so they're exempt from adhering to the ADA and other laws. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot going on there. And, you know, it, I, I like how you explain that because it, again, you know, as safety professionals, it's always, it's always important for us to understand anything that may affect, affect safety, you know, particularly at work, but also at home. And of course, home safety affects work safety, as we all know. So when we talk about that, you know, like you said, if you're filling out a job application and people are asking about a disability, then of course, and, and particularly in right to work states like, like here in Texas, you know, some people have to wonder, you know, well, are they gonna go through the applications and just put everybody with a disability into, into the B pile immediately? And what's to stop that? 
you know, so it, it, it's always something that's of interest. And, and then the other thing is that we want to make sure that we're able to do the best we can with not only accommodations and, but also due diligence with exposure prevention or, or, or incident prevention holistically, because if, if somebody has, you know, any type of uh, personal medical condition, we want to make sure that's not being exasperated at work. And so being able to do that within the context of HIPAA is something that's very important, you know, and that ranges from everything from doing a mobility impaired listing for the fire safety plan, you know, all the way to, you know, Disabilities Act and, and reasonable accommodations to make sure that we're able to understand the safety implications, but not violate anybody's confidentiality. And with COVID-19, there's been a lot of that as well with being able to do things like contact tracing and exposure prevention and making sure all that's routed through the appropriate personnel with the appropriate safeguards. Uh, so there, there's a lot to it, you know, and I like how you explain those definitions and, and how those things apply. And so we're able to make sure we have the right subject matter experts involved to make sure everything is done appropriately and with everybody's best interest. Um, but that's fantastic information. So the, the, the last thing, you know, I always ask everybody these about the different topics we talk about is let's say that, you know, you had a magic wand and you could affect change right here, right now. You know, you could make something different. What, what's something that you would like to see changed immediately regarding uh, whether it's healthcare or whether it's workplace, um, uh, work-life balance, work, workplace accommodations for, for chronic illness or, or how people understand and how people, um, how people are able to understand and advocate for people with, with chronic, chronic situations or trauma? What, what, what would your magic wand answer be? Well, my magic one answer would start off by getting rid of private insurance and change this country to a single-payer healthcare system. If money is removed from the system, doctors would not be able to refuse patients because they don't have the money. More people would be healthier. And as long as healthcare in this country is profit-driven, the goal of the medical field will always be to get more people diagnosed with a chronic condition so that there are not only new customers, but perpetual customers. Why are corporations, individuals like highly paid C-suite executives making money off the misfortune of their fellow, fellow Americans? Why are those with chronic illnesses forced to make decisions for their personal well-being based on their bank account? I see it all the time. People make bad medical decisions based off the amount of money that they have in their bank account. And to me, that's terrible. And I don't wanna get all political here, but the United States is the richest country in the world. Why can't we guarantee all people in this country at least a free basic level of healthcare? Why should going to the doctor be tied to an employer, you know, employer given health insurance? Doesn't everyone want, deserve to be healthy? Don't we as a country want to ensure that everyone living here can go to the doctor before the flu turns into pneumonia and someone has no choice but go into the ER? And the second thing I would do is I think we all need to be more sensitive to the fact that everyone is fighting their own battles, many of which might be invisible to the naked eye. And many people go, go to great lengths to appear what society deems, quote, normal. Be polite, be kind. For many people, the appearance of being normal 
takes a lot of effort. And on the outside, we have no way of knowing what the actual story is. That's, that's definitely true. You know, it's, um, I, I, you know, of course, my, my experiences are anecdotal, you know, sing, singular experiences of myself, but, you know, I, I can definitely attest to that part is, you know, I, I had a, you know, personal medical condition that had come up and when throughout that time, you know, I was on, on several different medical treatments and whatnot. And during that time, uh, I was at, at some points I was completely incapacitated. And at some points I was, I had, I had gained, a, you know, about a hundred pounds from, from prednisone and all, all different kinds of different things. And to your point, you know, a lot of, while there's a lot of people that, um, you know, it didn't, didn't, it didn't affect them one way or the other. There were people that, you know, would, would have those, those kind of side conversations about, you know, well, I heard Corey's on drugs or I heard, you know, I heard, um, I heard Corey's, you know, in the mental hospital or all different kinds of things would get back to me. And at some points people would ask me for medical information that they weren't, they didn't have a need to know. And, um, at some points, um, I would I would have to explain that there were certain things that I wasn't physically able to do, um, and so there, there were a lot of different things there that I I had I had been in a lot of trainings about and I had learned about, but um, seeing those firsthand, especially from the other side of the of the situation, is very different. Um, so, as safety professionals, you know, I I think that's very important that we were able to empathize and and understand how these things can happen and not only how that affects workplace safety but how that affects people's lives in general so uh, we certainly appreciate you being here today and, and sharing with us <clears throat> so with all that being said um is there any, anything else that you'd like to add today before we wrap it up well Corey, i'd like to thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak on this podcast and share a bit of my personal story and experiences and of course, thank you to everyone listening to this podcast. I hope I was able to impart some helpful information to you. Certainly, definitely always, always very informative. And, and you know, we certainly appreciate all the work that you've done over the years. Um, I know many of our, many of our members have, have probably, probably spoken to you when you were at National Baby Council. So definitely a small world out there. Um, but yeah, that's uh, we'll go ahead and tie it up today. But uh, you know, as always, you're everybody has a you know you have an open invitation to come back. Uh, we can we can certainly talk about this topic more. Or, or of course, I know that you have a a, a, a large scope of knowledge on all, all different types of situations and and hazards. But uh, for everybody listening, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, definitely please check out our anchor page. We're at anchor.fm slash ASSP dash HCPS dash health beat. And we have, uh, goodness, we're up to 18 episodes now. So we have uh, today's episode. And then of course we have a needle stick sharps injury prevention panel we just completed, which is great. And then we have information about public health and seaburn response. We have information about ergonomics. We have information about uh, needle sticks, bloodborne pathogens, body fluid exposures, we have information about respiratory protection. We have all different kinds of topics. So we certainly encourage you to check out the podcast. 
and then with webinars, the healthcare practice specialty has a webinar coming up on, um, let's see, October 15th. We're going to be talking about the, the new OSHA emergency temporary standard for COVID-19. And that's going to be with Dr. Amber Mitchell. And then on November 5th, we're going to be talking about preventing burnout syndrome. So that's uh, very related to what we've been talking about today. And then also speaking of this, um, with today's topic uh, with, with Christy, we're going to be publishing an article in the Health Beat about this that'll be coming up. So be on the lookout for that. It's going to be um, it's going to be from from Christy and myself. We're going to be talking about about chronic illness and trauma and how that affects safety. So as always, if anybody's interested in writing or presenting or being a podcast guest, please feel free to get in touch. You can reach us on the ASSP communities, and you can also reach us on our LinkedIn page or on our new Twitter feed, which is at uh, the you know the little at sign at ASSP HDPS. So with all that. Um, we hope to hear from you real soon and otherwise we'll, we'll talk to everybody at the next opportunity. Have a great night. Thank you.